Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 204. This week, we finally sit down with Niraj Joshi to talk about the Ignite 2018 announcements, including Ultra SSDs, Digital Twins, Azure Sphere, and more. Windows Kernel Internals. And GitHub Actions. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. This week we have Niraj Joshi, random awesome dude at Microsoft. How's it going? Not too bad. Thank you for the introduction. <laughs> so, I have, that's a title I'll wear all my life. Yeah, I'm awesome dude. Yeah, no. So you're 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 a peer of, of myself, and uh, you have an awesome history from the uh, the SQL you know from the SQL group. So you've written software that you know probably most of our listeners have used at one point, which is pretty cool. Yeah, awesome. awesome. I'm glad we we're able to get you to talk about some cool Ignite announcements. But first, let's go through the comment of the week. What do we got, Carl? Yes, from Twitter, we got Igor Kuhlman uh, asking, uh, could you start providing show uh, links in the summary shown in the podcast clients so I don't have to go to the website to check out a link that you mentioned? Um, I totally get what you're asking for, Igor. Uh, it's nice. You're in your podcast client already. You hear something, you just tap on it, and it'll open it up right on your phone. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's a little workflow problem that Jason and I have to work out. <laughs> so aside from other technical details, I do the show notes and Jason does the sound in the podcast release. That's a good point. I didn't even think of that. I was just thinking, man, this is just extra work for me. Like I should just do it. Like just, well, and not to mention, <laughs> but the there's a lot wrong. of times that you'll get your piece done before me. Yeah. So this would require me to every time be done before you, Jason. Yeah. It's funny. We, we use like a, we use like this, uh, we'll call, I was going to say lazy, but I'll call it just in time delivery for the podcast. So I end up actually like editing the episode and I push it. Carl actually gets his notification from the podcast app and that's his signal to go publish the show notes, which is uh, sad and hilarious, but you know, like it works. That's why there's a delay in the, in the show notes. But the, the thing is, uh, at that point, the, yeah, the, it's not ready to, to plug into there. Uh, so we'll have to figure that out. It's, it's a legitimate request, and it is, uh, it's actually pretty sad that we don't have that in there. The other thing we don't do are chapters, because I see that he's using Overcast, and Overcast does support chapters. Sorry about that. I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon either, uh, just because of the, the time commitment. Um, I spend as little time as humanly possible editing and publishing these. That's why... We don't do all the fancy stuff of some of these bigger podcasts where they, they edit out all the breaths and mistakes and things like that. Um, we just we just go with it, man. You but know, in all, addition, all we've also automated tons of that stuff, too. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we've got some really cool automation techniques for podcasts. So if you're a podcaster and you want to learn more from us, reach out. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Yeah, so if you want to get mentioned on the show like Igor, send us an email to feedback at msdevshow.com, comment on Facebook, YouTube, or Stitcher, and we really love those five-star iTunes reviews. Absolutely. Okay, so let's get into the news. So what do we got, Carl? Introducing the Windows Kernel, or Windows Internal Series, not Kernel, uh, one Windows Kernel. Yeah, so I think so we, were, we were, this is a series we've been following, right? Well, this is a new series that oh. this is the first of. Oh, 
So there's a new blog post series that the uh, Windows team is putting out. And just to let everybody know, hey, this is like what goes on inside Windows technically. And the first blog post is about the one Windows kernel. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that uh, we'll let everybody kind of peek into this blog post if they're interested in it. Uh, there's a lot of techie uh, details. Mm-hmm. Um and it's it's a lot of reading and it's pretty pretty meaty. So if you're into that kind of thing, if you're curious like what goes on inside Windows, you might want to uh, put this in your RSS reader or you know peruse this at your own uh, at your own schedule. Perfect. So we'll have that in the show notes, but not in your podcast reader. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then the next one here, introducing GitHub Actions. I saw this. uh, People are going crazy about this on Twitter. Yeah. So this this is a way to really declaratively put into code what your what your workflow automation is Uh once it gets into GitHub. Yeah. So this this doesn't replace like your build process or anything, right? It looks so, like it kicks off your bit. Yeah. So it, it, this looks like it's sort of meta, right? Like it's maybe kicking off the build process and then going in and doing some of the deployment options. Yeah. I think you could probably, you know, if you really wanted to, you mm-hmm. could use this, you know, to replace your build process, but it's really more to supplement and extend that whole CI to CD pipeline that you might already be using. Make it easier, make it, make it consistent across all of your, uh, you know, different environments. Yeah. It looks like it's focusing, like I said, mostly on, on deployment, uh, which is great. Cause I think there's a lot of overlap with uh, the Azure DevOps platform with the, the build pipelines, uh, which is really great for setting up a build process and actually going through the steps of restoring packages, actually doing your build process on, on different machines and, and that whole thing. So it looks like this is like one layer above that and helps orchestrate uh, from that perspective. So that is that is very cool. And like I said, I think it'll be really neat to see how these things become more integrated over time. And, uh, you know, it's it's so nice now being able to do this stuff in the cloud and not have to, uh, you know, figure out how to like run all these builds locally and, and do all this manual orchestration. I love having all this automation around check-ins and, and just being able to push a button and have this stuff happen so or it- not even push a button. Is this like a trigger in terms of this whole serverless world trying to go IFTT completely or what part yeah. of the actions does it do? Well, it's, it's like sort of like everything is IFTT, right? <laughs> when, when something happens, like do this other thing. And, um, you know, I'm just kind of looking through some of the things that they, that they have here. And um, I think, you know, you, you're, you're, I don't think you're, it doesn't look like you're going to do your build here unless it's something really simple, you know, just like Azure websites can do like a really basic build. Uh, you know, it's kind of a loose definition of, of build in that particular case. So this is like for that higher level orchestration. Um, so it, it looks like it can kick off your build process. And then whenever you have an artifact in there, you can push that to Docker hub, um, which I actually like because it always did feel a little awkward. Um, you can absolutely do this, but it feels awkward in my build process to actually like, uh, you know, publish from the build process to somewhere else. Um, it is nice being able to like have that one layer above where I take that Docker container and then actually put it into production one layer above that. So, um, we're just giving everybody a heads up. I haven't, uh, I haven't gone through and and used this uh, yet. I do know one other thing, one other piece of this that people were going crazy about was the, the secrets functionality. So you can actually do some, some secret management in there for, um, 
um, you know, for like the actual production information, which is great. Cause I used to use like, um, before I started using like VSTS for my builds, I was using uh, Travis CI uh, as a build process. It was great for pulling your code from GitHub, doing a build, and then it would have its own secret management and it would know, um, you know, how to deploy something and say, here's all the connection information and all those things that you need to know. And now that's built uh, right into GitHub, which I think is a is a welcome addition because I want a trustworthy place to put those secrets. Like, I don't even know who ran Travis CI. I don't know if they were just harvesting all my connection strings and all that kind of information. I'm sure they weren't, but you know, like I, I just, it's, it's one of these things where it's when it's another third party service, then I have to, uh, um, you know, I have to go do some research on it. What were you saying in the chat here, Carl? Oh, it's me. I didn't. Oh, that was you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's internal. As far as I know, this was used by a lot of Microsoft uh, or oh, the, tra- the Travis CI. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. yeah. But it's a public service. It's just a free public service, though. Oh, okay, okay. I yeah, thought yeah. they did their own and then they open source it later on. So. Oh, maybe, maybe. I don't. I again, I don't know who runs it. If it's Microsoft that runs it, then that's great. Like I, I I'm not quite sure who I put my trust in. Is my point. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully, yeah. hopefully, it was somebody trustworthy. Yeah. Uh, um, anything else, Nirash? No, no, I think I think with the whole general secrets wall, I think the trend is to kind of try to go towards the HMS things or key vaults, right? Where yeah. you are now just trying to authenticate yourself to the key vault. That's the only part of that missing yeah. piece. But after that, there's no more secrets to be, you know, uh, managed or other ones. And you are just trying to have that own service run itself. Right? Yeah, exactly. But I also have things like uh, Docker Hub, like the username and password. For, although I guess those get authenticated together, so that's probably not a big deal. But you're right. Uh, we're going to this world where you just have like one master key or master certificate. And then we have a super secure way of storing everything else. Um, okay, so let's get into the Ignite announcements. And I know we're you know, like relatively late to this. And I explained in a previous episode, you know, we were, a a lot of people jumped on this and they were, they were putting out the news and it was basically just, you know, sort of going through what the, the Microsoft announcements were. Now we've had a little bit of time, you know, like some time has passed. Like I think people have a good understanding of like what's big news, what isn't big news, that type of thing. Um, So I actually think the timing for this is, uh, is pretty good. Um, I did want to sort of lay out some things ahead of time. Uh, One big caveat is that you know whenever whenever Microsoft talks about services, you always have to look: is this is this private preview, is this public preview, or is this GA? And there's a massive difference between all three of those. Private preview means that you might not, you know, you can't just go and click and say like, "Give me that." You you pretty much have to sign up and then cross your fingers that you get accepted in that program, depending on what you're, you know, basically they'll they'll usually ask some things about your workload. And if it's something that they're interested in testing, then they will bring you to the private preview. Then there's public preview, which where you can just go out and click that. Uh, but there's no guarantee that that service might won't disappear. It won't change or dramatically. Change. Yeah. Cha- you know, change. It could change dramatically. Like that's the whole point of testing in public is let's get this feedback. And um, if everybody says, hey, this is crap, you should have done it this other way. Well, that's fine. It's public preview. So then you can shift gears. And so, you know, don't build your production system on public previews is my point. And then if you see something as GA or generally available, that's when you can build your production system on it. That's when you're going to get official support and those types of things. So I just want to make that clear. Go ahead, Niraj. 
There's one more point on that is uh, sure. pricing. So generally public oh, preview yeah. overall is at 50% of the cost of GA. And yeah. that's important to note because it, otherwise you would have a massive sticker shock if you go and deploy in GA yeah. and, you know, you expect the same pricing. So Yeah, and they're usually pretty good about labeling it like, hey, this is, you know, this reflects preview pricing. But that's that's a good point is a rule of thumb is they generally charge 50%. So, you know, you can take that risk and start building your stuff on it. But, you know, just know that, Nobody's going to listen when you complain if it if it changes or goes away because that's that's the name of the game there. Um, and then I also want to in the show notes we're going to have a, a a link to a PDF that has sort of an outline of all the announcements, even more than we're even going through here. So um, I recommend going and checking that out as well. Um, and that's actually what we built a lot of this off of. So I think we should just get into it. I, I think the the first big section is around data. And uh, this was this was a very data focused ignite, and that's why we wanted to get Niraj on here because he's our data guy. Um, so Niraj, I don't know what I don't know what you want to talk about first. What are you chomping at the bit to talk about first? I'm chomping at the bit to talk about SQL. I mean, I'm a SQL guy. Right? <laughs> Big shot. <laughs> no surprises there, yeah. yeah. Uh, but there was just a ton of announcements at Ignite. I mean, I I had heard murmurs of that from the SQL product group for some time. Of course, I couldn't talk publicly till till we actually announced it. But uh, I do see some significant, you know, updates which are going on and sort of radically changing what SQL Server looks like, right? I mean, the SQL Server fold, I, I was there since SQL 2000, uh, 2000 timeframes. And now, I mean, it's, we are the, one of the only few databases was able to keep up with the times. I mean, I would say commercially available. I, I, I do have a tremendous amount of respect for Postgres, MySQL, but amongst the other big competitors, I do see SQL as one of the leading ones uh, keeping lockstep at whatever cloud scale uh, essentially means, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so very specifically, right? For SQL Server, we announced SQL Server 2019 and preview edition. Now, even though this says public preview, it's available for folks, but you have to sign up to kind of go undergo underwent undergo through the private preview experience of mm -hmm. very specific features, and I'll I'll probably go go through that. I think. In general, what they're trying to do is they're trying to kind of uh, lay SQL 2019 into three buckets, right? So one part of it is called data virtualization, where, hey, you're trying to talk to all the different sources of data. They not they need not be native to your application or your database, right? Mm -hmm. uh, they're in the generic, I would say, jargon of data lake comes in. So you literally can talk to now any specific data lake of sorts. So it's used to be, hey, we can talk to HDFS, we can talk to you know, some sort of NoSQL or a CSV file. Uh, with 2019, they've kind of opened the gates and now you can connect to an Oracle table, you can connect to a Teradata one or a SQL DW uh, and, and essentially treat them as an external table. Right. And, and, and how does that actually how does that actually work? I mean, like if I have a pile of CSV files, like can I have SQL work against that? Yes, absolutely. So, oh, so the technology amazing. has been there <laughs> since uh, SQL 2016, but it's getting better and better called Polybase. It's you okay. essentially declare it as an external table, and once you essentially it links over to the CSV file and reads of that. Now mm -hmm. you have to be cognizant that it's not a, what you call a SQL table. So it doesn't have an index, right? You can materialize an index, right. but it by default doesn't have that. But at least it gives you this capability of being a hybrid user, right? So 90% of your data might be in SQL, 10% might be in some other table. Now you don't need to have complicated ETL processes to pull them into SQL, do stuff, and then you know push it back. You can have your single source of truth over there, and then just you know uh, play with that data as as you need it. So yeah, absolutely, pretty cool. Uh, I I I do see a lot of uh, 
folks use it, especially now in this cloud world where people get to choose their technologies, right? It used to be a, yeah. either you go with one and stick with one, and then cloud people have the flexibility of going anywhere and everywhere they want. So it allows them to use SQL in, in, in those cases. That's what I mean by SQL now being agile. Yeah. So one one of the other things that was mentioned in this announcement is that it also has a built-in Spark and Hadoop distributed file system. What does that even mean for people who aren't used to that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I know that that actually was the big one. So that's my second pillar. But uh, the, thanks, thanks uh, for the segue call. Is this actually has been huge, right? I mean, if you if you just parse that, like before with data virtualization, we had the ability to talk to an HDFS layer, right? So you could using Polybase connect to an HDFS uh, data source and read from that. Now, what we are saying is instead of us just talking to it and then pulling the data in, so there's a lot of ETL and a lot of different, uh, I would say, processes involved, we can sit right exactly where Hadoop is being deployed, right? So if you look at the canonical diagrams over in, in, in the announcement, essentially showing like SQL and Spark, all of them sharing one common HDFS layer. So the architecture is pretty awesome if you double click into that wherein you do have what we call as storage nodes or a storage pool, which essentially consists of a SQL node and a, and a Spark node talking to a HDFS data node, right? That, that would be your pod, if you will, from a, borrowing from a Kubernetes term. But, uh, and then you would essentially have a compute pool on top, and then you could have a SQL master instance. So, so the way it would flow through is the SQL master instance can directly read from HDFS, but if you need to do complicated, let's say, query uh, uh, join tasks from different sets of pools in HDFS, you can do that. Now, if you combine that with the first part, what I talked about with data virtualization, is you can have a secondary pool talking to external data sources like Teradata, Mongo, Oracle, and you can have some data sources talking to HDFS, some data sources having native SQL, and all of it can be joined together in the compute pool and then served up uh, directly to your app or your you know, BI or analytics tool as the case may be. So it's truly a, a, a big hybrid kind of scalable uh, architecture. Before it was SQL Excel didn't just scale up and scale down, right? Right from one core to you know, 256 cores, whatever yeah. you want. And now this is truly going towards a scale out model wherein you could have different desperate data sources and you can use SQL as the point of intersection and joins and then serve it off to customers. So what if I'm a SQL purist, right? Like I'm like, no, I don't want to use any of these other technologies. Does that just mean that SQL itself now can scale out as well, or is that not the case? No. So that thanks for that. Okay. SQL itself will not directly scale out, right? I mean, okay. there are nuances there. Uh, like SQL is still as a single engine kind of a player, single master, okay. if you will. It's, SQL is not currently in the multi-master uh, space. And uh, that said... The amount of scale out you need for exploring or going into different kind of, uh, I would say, as much as you want or turning the dial is available in in uh, Azure SQL, Azure DB. And that's actually a second part, which I'll, I'll come by. But hold on to that thought. We, we will come on to that from a SQL purist part of view, right? And, and the keyword okay. there is hyperscale, right? How do we go to the hyperscale when we want it? Yeah. Uh, and, well, and, and before we move on, like, I, I want to make sure I understand this too. So... So if I want to, I can obviously in this system, I can write my SQL queries like I always had, but if I want to start mixing in some big data things and I want to run like a spark query against it, so that's, I can do that then that all sit, sort of sits together at that point. 
Uh, absolutely right. So okay. you can have your SQL and your Spark queries running on the same data sets instead of having to ETL different data sources and you know trying to run queries that and then you know, cool. shipping them off. So that, that's it, awesome. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I mean, it's it's a first step, right? I mean, it's it's been people have been asking, hey, where is SQL in terms of this big data space, right? And we till now we have had different technologies yeah, playing it, that. It always felt like it's like, oh, it's it's over there, <laughs> right? And now it's just like, boom, like it's right there yep. as part of this uh, sort of unified data strategy. Very cool. Yep. I'm getting cool. it now. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think uh, well, I also I'm, I think I'm, I'm at this point I need need to play with it more in terms yeah. of to to understand the scope of it, right? And one thing I want to emphasize is this is not just Azure, this is SQL, right? So you can use it right. in any cloud of your choice or even your private data center, and it'll still behave the exact same way. So you can have a complete Hadoop system with SQL embedded in that entire HDFS system and use SQL relational queries or your favorite tools. Uh, and still be operational, right? So we obviously do light up Azure in different ways, but I th the whole part of SQL is you just can take it and play with it in your existing platforms of choice. Yep, very cool. What do you want to talk about next on data? So the, the third pillar on that SQL announcement has been around this entire AI platform, right? I mean, it's it's a matter of just reinforcing that SQL since the last two releases, we actually now have... Uh, built-in R and Python processing within SQL itself, right? We have a predicts function over, um, and, and all of that is also to make sure you are processing your data or your ML models right where the data lives, right? And coming back to this big data concept over. Mm -hmm. So that's also, uh, the, there's not too many people who realize how awesome in that sense is it's a mind shift. If, if you have a lot of data in SQL, you don't need to again kind of deploy a separate model or a separate service to kind of process that model. Uh, most of your ML you know, models are written in Python or R, and you absolutely can leverage in proc inside the SQL Server environment itself. Right? So, so there are a bunch of announcements in SQL 2019 going forward for, for that specific effort. Right? Yeah. So, I mean, overall, I mean, I'm just really impressed though by, by SQL Server and how it's been able to keep up with the times. I mean, something that's been around for as long as it has been, and it hasn't gone down some weird path where, where everybody's like, what the heck are you doing? Like it's, you know, every time I talk to people, I mean, they're always, if they're, if they're using SQL or now even some of these big, big data technologies, like they're always excited about what's coming. Yep. Um, so it's really impressive from that standpoint. No, I 100% agree because it is yeah. impressive, right? I mean, it is impressive given the mind shift and the amount of different, you know, uh, thought processes you have to come go up with. It's easy for uh, a startup kind of a thing, which I think Azure was, I would say, seven years ago, right? To come up with something radically new with, you know, blob storage and and mm -hmm. and to an extent even Cosmos DB, right? I mean, they just ground up, rewrote themselves. Whereas for SQL to take an existing code base, an existing user base, and then slowly shift gears into how do you do cloud scale or how do you adapt to the different, uh, you know, needs of, of of your customers has been just phenomenal. Right? I do know exactly. there are some super smart people over there. So, absolutely. Okay, okay. what's next? So the next part, actually, like we talked about, was regarding the SQL hyperscale, right? And, and there's managed instance part of it. So managed instances one, which is an, an Azure uh, deployment or Azure SKU, is something very easy to explain in the sense it's just mm -hmm. taking a SQL instance, shoving it up to the cloud, and not letting the, any of the DBAs worry about it. So SQL, uh, like Azure manages it for you end to end. You don't need to worry about it. <laughs> exactly. Right? Because as some... we know, I mean, we should give a little bit of back, background on this too. Like, you know, all of us on, on here, like we, we talk to partners 
and they install SQL in a VM and then it doesn't perform very well. And they're like, oh man, what is wrong with Azure? And it's like, well, <laughs> like this is very complicated. There's tuning on SQL. There's like tuning of the machine. There's like so many variables in here. So, I mean, does this solve, you know, like the majority of those issues? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the one thing which you didn't mention, I, I would like to highlight as well, is about HANDR, right? Every single time when you're deploying it, there is whole sorts of things you need to worry about, right? I mean, you need to do a lot of testing, you need to have a lot of uh, training practices and making sure your app is resilient or DB is resilient and setting the entire high availability disaster recovery off SQL, right? I mean, admittedly, SQL does make it easy. We have a lot of features with include always on and availability groups, so on and so forth. That said, there is still an extra works of, hey, have I tested it enough? What if, what's my downtime? What's my SLAs right. around that? And having not to worry and not to have resources dedicated towards that is a huge, uh, I would say, mind shift unlocking for, for our partners, right? So when we yeah. talk to, uh, let's say, folks, they want to make it developer-centric. They want to kind of build the next new features for their own apps and not worry about what's my retention strategy on my database and how am I going to manage it? So this, that's why the managed instance comes into play. The second part, so, I mean, again, one more thing, sorry, Carl, uh, is we used to have Azure DB and we still have it and it's awesome. And we have yeah. some features coming, talking about it. I was going to say, it's not used to, like it's, it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> it's still there, but for the longest period of time, the only managed part of database was Azure SQL database. Yeah. And it was a database centric management of that. This is the first time we've gone to an instance centric of it. So you can have multi databases, you can have CLR, you can have cross database queries, all of those things, which a lot of existing apps have depended on now can be completely handed off to Azure. And, yeah. and, you know. But it's not a replacement by by any stretch, right? No, it, it's not. It's, yeah, it yeah. essentially is kind of widely... I don't want to I don't want to worry anybody who's using like the managed instances or not the man the uh man this is going to be really tough to talk about. <laughs> whatever whatever the the thing was right before this announcement, you know, the cuz I always used to call it like managed, you know, the managed for you SQL, but the the SQL Azure will call it. Yes. Um you know, like it is a, an amazing product. And honestly, like personally, I would still start there. Um, but I'm glad that we have this other option. So, I mean, there's two great options for slightly different use cases. Yeah. yeah so the, the one thing I want to ask you really quick before we moved off managed instances, as, as, as I'm looking at the announcement, it says this solution provides near full compatibility with SQL Server. So before we get people like worrying about like what's missing, you know, what, what, what does that mean? Oh, thank you. Uh, so near for compatibility, let me back up and talk about uh, SQL. I mean, I think just what you said, SQL Azure was original name. So I still refer to it SQL Azure. Mm-hmm. I think SQL Azure database or Azure DB, they've oh, yeah, kind of SQL, undergone a yeah. different uh, yeah. uh, managed or marketing names over there. Those were managed databases. Now, as as you all know, or folks who, who have been uh, experts in SQL, there's a lot more to SQL than just a database, right? There's this master database. There is, uh, you know, SQL jobs, which are instance or uh, which you might run. There are things which have CLR. You might have managed code in, inside mm-hmm. SQL. Now, in a, a SQL Azure database, a lot, some of those features were not enabled, right? So you still don't have access to the entire master database. You still can't do... Let's say you might have two databases in your application and you might rely on cross database queries of just checking some, hey, is my employee ID correct or or whichever part. That's still not allowed. I mean, there are ways to get around it with external tables, 
but it's still not as elegant uh, or a lift and shift approach as people are used to with their on-prem uh, deployments. And with managed instance, now you can have multiple databases, for instance, right? Uh, coming back to the near, you know, uh, what I call surface area compliance, it, it's uh, it's to do with, like, like you also mentioned, managed code, SQL CLR, right? The couple of things which are still not enabled are the things like, of file streams or file tables, which which used to give you or still give you access to the system on site, right? So mm -hmm. the, the files on on your um, uh, deployment server, and obviously in Azure for security reasons we can't let you have that. So those ones are still disabled. But barring those few ones which are listed, uh, you absolutely have the run of the bell. You can literally deploy everything you want uh, with managed instances. Very cool. Very cool. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, what do we want to talk about next? Like, do you want to talk about Data Explorer, Cosmos DB? Oh, the one last thing I do want to talk oh, about is Hyperscale, right? Uh, oh, so yeah. Hyperscale was another one which was announced, and this is a specific SQL Azure uh, Azure DB announcement for mm -hmm. now. Is is till now, or I would say uh, two years ago, our, the maximum database size we used to have in a managed database was a one terabyte. Right. Yep. And and there were, as you well know, from a lot of our partners or partners who have been dealing with a lot of historical or auditing data, they said, you know what, our database can grow limitless, right? I mean, I'm used to having a 10 terabyte database on on-prem. Why can't you give me that? Or how do I kind of get the scale out, quote unquote, benefits of, of using that? And, and this is another radical, radical kind of uh, what I call uh, reworkings of SQL Azure. Right. So if you go and look up the blog for hyperscale, right, you can see they essentially redid the architecture of SQL. They ripped the inards out, like the storage engine, the query processor, and the log writer, and put each of them in a separate container or a separate kind of an instance. And then using a lot of, I would say, pre-existing technologies, like we had buffer pool extensions, right? So using some of those kind of interface that with your main SQL instance so that your SQL instance, while it's still a single master, now can work with multiple SQL, I would say containers or nodes, whatever you want to call it, and each of those can grow at sizes of one terabyte and more, right? Mm -hmm. And then at the log side, they did several innovations trying to say, hey, we, we can let the log scale limitlessly. We don't have to truncate the log. So in cases of you know auditory reasons or regulatory reasons, we can still keep the entire ones and still have a mechanism of, kind of going from a premium storage to a regular Azure storage for you know, TCO uh, optimizations, get that end-to-end -end done. So, so that part is also very, very cool. I mean, in terms of uh, the way they have kind of scaled out. So one thing which absolutely I do want to make sure we, we would do and we are working with Azure team is like, what's the entire end-to-end -end story regarding a TCO or a pricing perspective going to be? But the early indications, at least the documentations are, it's just going to fit right in into the Azure DB model, right? So if you have a 10 terabyte database, there will be some levers for size, there'll be some levers for cores and memory, and it's, it's just going to be a very logical kind of a placement of where it fits in. But it, it does now kind of think about of you going scale out for all of your, if you have a limitless database kind of storage. Yeah. So is there like a limit, I mean, what is the limit then? Uh, yeah, I did. So thank you for pointing it out. And I should not have said <laughs> limitless because limitless is limitless. It's 100 terabytes. Right? Okay. Which is, I would say, that's a lot more of data. Than, yes. Exactly. <laughs> a lot well, of plus, relational data, mind you, right? So. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Like, it's relational data. And people don't realize, too, like, you know, a lot of times with, with like, high volume data, you turn on compression. 
And it's just insane. I mean, the amount of data you could fit in 100 terabytes uh, with a schema is just ridiculous. So, yeah. yeah, that's that's great, though. That's that's it used to be a little scary, like, hey, we're, we might bump into this limit one day. Yep. And now I think uh, I think that alleviates a lot of those concerns. So that's great. Cool. What's next? Um, so the next, I think, Jason, now this is something I would ask you to talk about or we can have a discussion about, which is regarding Azure Data Explorer, right? I mean, you and I, yep. I know we talked uh, offline as well uh, for, I guess, two years. I remember you in a partner meeting, I, I me and asking, hey, what is this newer thing codenamed? I'll, I'll not say the codename, but which is now Azure Data Explorer. And then it's pretty cool in terms of, again, it, it utilizes data in a different way and allows people to play with that data, right? The whole exploration part of it. Yeah, and um, this is one where I think this is also used on like uh, Azure Stream, uh, not Azure Stream Analytics, or not Streaming Analytics. It's on uh, what is it called? App Insights. It's right. the the uh, what do they call that? It's like the Explorer in there. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but there's a there's a piece of uh, of App Insights. It's really interesting that lets you sort of arbitrarily go in there and query. Um, your app insight data, and that's been available, you know, for like well over a year, maybe like two years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been a really interesting piece of functionality. It's like, hey, I'd really like to have this like high scale data storage and querying available, you know, sort of generically, and that's what this is. Um, so we'll we'll sort of have to see how this pans out over time. But I mean, one thing that I've I've really liked about that technology is this ability to say, hey, uh, query this data group by this one value and then throw it into a bar chart. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's just amazing functionality. That's, that's the kind of stuff too, that I would love to see come to uh, like SQL management studio and, and those types of things. Uh, but it's, it's a really neat product. I'm not, you know, to be honest with you, like, I'm not sure. And this is the thing that, you know, I've had lots of discussions about is, you know, I'm not sure what the positioning is. Obviously there's a lot of different data storage technologies out there and people always ask, you know, like, when should I use SQL Managed Instance? When should I use Azure SQL Database? When should I use Cosmos DB? And now it's like, when should I use Azure Data Explorer? Uh, there's there's those types of things. So, um, so you know, yeah. one of the questions I have with this is, so this is like really for like a lot of ad hoc understanding of the data. So is is this something that you kind of like spin up and spin down as you kind of need it or... I'm not sure. To be honest, I'm not sure. Like I haven't, I haven't had a chance to play with this yet. I'd love to get some data in there and then start to play with it. And, and like I said, figure out what, um, yeah, like where, where, where this really should be positioned. I think, I think the trend which I've seen over the past few years within Azure engineering has been, Hey, if there's some tooling we've been using internally, and this is awesome for us, yeah, let other customers benefit from our experience. And that's, that's where I see this also evolve, right? It, it initially has been just an internal tool internally, you know, which yeah. everybody in, in, in Azure was using. And it became so popular that they said, you know what, let's, let's surface it out and let's see what general population kind of, you know, how other companies can benefit from it. And I think Jason, as, as you kind of allude to, uh, my, my ultimate thing is also what's the price point entry? What's the benefit? Mm-hmm. How are we positioning it, right? And, and, and it's, I think the, the, the case is out there, right? I mean, the, the exploration, the experience is fantastic. We just need to make sure it's the right product or the right recommendation. And then we'll see how that kind of Yeah, so right now, yeah, right now it's in preview and it is $40 per core per month. So ultimately it'll be $80 per core per month. Um, and then it looks like you need, there's a storage component to it as well. So yeah, I, I, I just don't, 
I don't know yet. This isn't something I've been able to use much. Oh, yeah. So right here, it mentions that it was used in log analytics, which, like I said, is part of App Insights. Um, it's also part of Application Insights. Um, oh, that's it. kind of interesting. They called them out separately because I think that's basically the same thing. Uh, but then Time Series Insights, uh, it's also used uh, as a backend for that. Um, and then this one I wasn't aware of, but uh, Windows Defender Advanced Threat Protection. Mm-hmm. So that was uh, that was new to me. Like I said, the uh, the queries on this I think are really cool. I think it's really, um, it is really good for 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 data exploration. You know, like being able to visualize that. Like SQL Management Studio also has it has this trick where you can like you know do like the geospatial data and view it in a map. Right. Um, I just want to see more of that. Like, don't just give me a table. You know, this grid of values. Like, let me start telling you how to display the data, and then that really helps you know us as developers. Like. Once I see that it's in the format that I want, like, oh, yeah, that's the right data and I can see it in this format, it makes it a lot quicker for me to sort of prototype and then actually build out, you know, what I'm going to ship to an end user. So I think, yeah, you're right. I mean, historically, my experience has been a lot of this also comes in. I think, in my view, the best BI tool of all time, I mean, no disrespect to SQL Management Studio, is Excel. Right. And yeah. I've seen a lot of these technologies also transition over and yeah. same sort of experiences which you're saying, right? Hey, I'm seeing a table. Why can't I just directly right click and get into a chart or a pivot table? And I remember 10 years ago, all of these technologies were in SQL and they just made it so much more easier to pop it into Excel, right? Even column store, a lot of the same ones are coming up to the consumer level. And, and kind of taking that analogy further is we have been used to some data kind of exploration ourselves and munging the data in not so elegant ways. We just want to democratize it to you, you know, overload a jargon uh, to so that anybody, it's so easy that they should just be you know, playing with the data rather than, you know, having to think of it as a burden. Right? Yep, so it's exactly. a mindset shift. So. Don't wait for users to report problems. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications, supports all major programming languages and platforms, and integrates with your current development workflow tools too. There's a free 14-day trial, and it takes minutes to implement, so start resolving issues in your application and check it out today at raygun.com. Okay, should we talk about Cosmos DB? Sure. Uh, I, I think one thing, and let me just finish up the SQL part, right? Uh, I just want sure. to kind of... Uh... All you want to talk about is SQL. <laughs> well, the, I, I don't want to come back to SQL later on, no, right? Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. There are two things which also kind of made this, this time at Ignite. One was SQL uh, being functional in Kubernetes part. So you in AKS, an Azure Kubernetes service, oh, you can deploy right. yeah, SQL yeah. in a container, right? So now that SQL, since the last 18 months, runs on Linux as well, uh, mm-hmm. The next instance was, hey, we can deploy SQL in a container. Yes, we did that. Okay, what about you know Kubernetes and how do we do it in pods? And I had done some initial hacks also trying to run it on Mesos. And and the, the thing is, it's not uh, there's no it's not a, a non-trivial. So it's it's easy to conceptualize. But there are a lot of backend tricks regarding you know how do you do the active uh, failover uh, availability groups, mm-hmm. and just having it completely working is awesome. And this is not as much for production scenarios, because the SQL instance is still a single instance and you will have you know, uh, your read-only instances in our uh, failover scenarios, but this is fantastic for DevOps, fantastic for unit testing, fantastic for seeing how SQL would you know, do it 
in 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 real time and and especially if you have small apps in your pod or in your convoy which are trying to you know work together with sql it's 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 great so you don't need to not have it as a container everything can be containerized and having different yeah. kind of uh, blocks in your pod working side by side is is cool Super so awesome. this is this is the kind of circling, um, making the full circle. Is SQL is not just a database for Windows. It's it's the new and cool and hip. And it kind of went as well with containers and Linux. <laughs> hey, fellow kids! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, SQL is on Twitter. No, sorry, I know you're you're on my case on that. So. Um, so that and the final part of that is, uh, despite I mean all of these other ones, even the innards of SQL in terms of you know. How do you do intelligent query processing? How do we, you know, still kind of trying to optimize memory grants for compilations? I mean, again, not super interesting for everyday people, but absolutely the thing we salivate over from a DBA perspective, right? So, so these are really awesome ones to just round up the entire SQL, you know, announcements over. Coming back to Cosmos, right? I mean, yep. I think uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about that. So. Uh, you saw the, the the overall note on having GA for multi-master, right? So yes. what are your thoughts on that? And I, I do have my own, you know, experiences as well. Yeah, I'll let Carl, yeah, I know Carl was excited about this. Yeah, I, I've just seen that there's there's a lot of solutions out there that are, are demanding having multi-master. And to me, this is really exciting to get at, even though this is, you know, coming from more of just like a, you know, like a standard enterprise application thing where you just have your one SQL DB and that's it. It's, it takes a little bit getting used to these new concepts that the cloud gives us access to, uh, especially for multi-master. Um, it's one that I haven't really figured out uh, as much as maybe some of my partners even already have. Yeah. So Neeraj, what it, you want to explain multi-master? Sure, sure. Uh, so multi-master is is traditionally one of the biggest, you know, uh, USPs of uh, the NoSQL databases, right? Wherein you essentially can write to the same database uh, from different places, right? So you can yep. have a database uh, over or a Cosmos DB database in West US, and you could have it replicated in Australia. And let's say two people are writing to that same database, multi-master will let you write to that, right? SQL will not let you write to that. SQL, by, by definition, wants to only right. have one primary, which is a read-write. Now, you can read from multiple locations, but you need to yeah. have one primary because its whole USP is part of the relational DB and having asset compliance and all of that. Whereas Cosmos or NoSQL in general uh, kind of excels in that loose consistency where they are not as uh, you know, have, you know, tightly bound. And then there are ways to have conflict resolution, right? So that's that's the you know USP part of it. And what 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 used to happen with Cassandra and Open Cassandra and other deployments was yes, you can deploy it, but then it becomes a pain to manage and maintain, right? So who kind of does this whole end-to-end? -end, uh, when one kind of node goes down, how do you resolve that? How do you maintain that? And what Cosmos DB does fantastically is just make it so simple and so easy to deploy and maintain. I mean, we, uh, all of us were at, at uh, the hack last week, right? It's, it takes a matter of minutes to set up a multi-master Cosmos DB. It's that easy yeah. in, in three different continents, right? And, and having that work. Now, the key thing also, as always, is you should use it where it's actually needed, right? Or, or you should know the scenario for your you know, multi-master rather than just a geo-replicated. So there's a difference between having a database geo-replicated and having a database open for multi-master, right? 
the multi-master is true multi-write kind of capabilities. And, and you might just want to have a very simple conflict resolution algorithm in place. Cosmos DB gives you three options, uh, last writer wins, and all of those are very, you know, very well-known academic kind of uh, options available. But those are the ones which you should be intentionally focused on, or you should kind of take care before you deploy so that you are not surprised at the very end. It's like, hey, why did this expect? People take SQL and deploy in Cosmos DB with wildly different results because that's not how it goes, right? So you should only Yeah, you use... really, have to, really have to shift your mindset there. Exactly. Yeah, because Cosmos DB was born in the cloud. Right, right. And, and it's, it's, it's really impressive in terms of the, the leaps which they've been able to do and uh, allowing net new functionality coming up. So, so Multimaster was the big one, which is in, in general available. So you can actually have your, your own you know, mission-critical uh, applications deployed. Uh, one more thing we announced in, in preview is around having a Cassandra API. That's another exciting thing, which, which mm -hmm. is also going to help a lot of our partners. So as you remember, Cosmos DB took the step of being multimodal, right? So it can not only talk with the SQL interface, but it can talk into a you know, graph interface with Gremlin, or it can talk with MongoDB API. And now having the, Cos the Cassandra API now enables more and more applications also to seamlessly kind of move, pivot towards cloud, right? And not have to re tremendously rewrite all of the applications uh, to support it. Now that said, one important thing to absolutely note is it's never going to be 100% compatible with Cassandra API. Cosmos DB team takes a great deal of pain to look, look at the feedback and see what's, you know, what's the maximum set of APIs which, which they can serve up, uh, but it's never going to be 100%. So you have to absolutely test out your case, make sure it works before you kind of migrate over to Cosmos DB. Well, and I would, I would encourage everybody too, like if there's something critical for you that's missing, like submit that as feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that stuff gets taken very seriously. I think I might've mentioned on a different episode. I mean, we, I think we've talked about this many times where I am shocked at how quickly my, like my feedback is addressed. You know, I just had a, I had an issue um, with Outlook and I submitted it and I was chatting with the engineer that day and they're just like, oh, try this, try this. And they're like, oh, yeah, he, you can see where the issue is now. You know, we're going to fix it for you. <laughs> and I can't believe like how many times that's happened. So, again, with this type of issue, just say like, hey, this would really unblock me. If, if only you would add this one little you know, piece for me, uh, you'll make my world a lot better. And I think you might be surprised at the at the result, you know, even if it takes like two months or whatever. Um, but, you know, it might not have gotten done at all if you didn't say something. No, absolutely spot on, right? I mean, I think all of the engineering groups I have over the last five, six years, I've seen a radical shift towards just mm -hmm. being completely customer centric, right? So the more amount of feedback you have, go ahead and submit it because we've absolutely read every single one of them as, as you have also experienced. Mm -hmm. right? So, cool. um, Anything else on Cosmos DB? Yes. Uh, well, I think the, the biggest thing that, you know, it might be a very small thing, but I think has a huge impact is the reserve capacity. Ah. So that's the ability to commit to a, a long-term usage, one to three years, and oh, okay. get, get a get a, a vast discount, I think upwards of 60%. Ooh, I so like that's, that. So that's a pretty big, I, mean, I know Cosmos isn't cheap, so taking 60% yeah. off really helps when you're putting that in your applications. Absolutely. Thanks for mentioning that, Carl. And I think that's actually going to be, I would ask all our listeners to kind of keep that in mind because you will see that coming up to every single product. Like as you mentioned for Cosmos DB, there's a reserve capacity for SQL and managed instance for every SQL SKU also coming into play. 
And I'll bet you with all going forward, we'll see more and more of Azure services now having supporting that. Yep, absolutely. Because that helps everybody, right? Like the reality is when you put something into production, you're going to be like, "Uh, this is going to be in there indefinitely. So I don't mind committing to three, one to three years, whatever. And I get a massive discount. And then from an Azure perspective, it helps with capacity planning. Hey, we know this workload is going to be there. It's not just somebody who is creating it, you know. I'm probably like the worst one at this, you know, I've, I've worked with Cosmos DB like 50 times and, you know, for 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> so they're like, Ooh, a new customer. And they're like, Oh, Ooh, a new customer. Oh, yeah. so it, it just really helps everybody. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing I want to talk about too, I don't know if you guys have any details on this, but um, Azure data box, I think this is kind of interesting. If you have a ton of data uh, that you want to move into Azure, there's a whole bunch of really cool options. Uh, there is the, uh, what are they called? The, the small one? Is that the edge? It's called edge. Okay. So there's data box edge. Um, and that one is how big is it? I think that's up to a hundred terabytes, something like that. I don't, I don't, I don't remember what the number is on that one, but anyway, if you just have like a boatload of data, um, or a box load of data, I guess that you want to move <laughs> into Azure, um, you can do that. And then we announced this new one, which is, uh, the heavy version, uh, which has a petabyte of storage capacity. And I hope that that would be enough storage capacity for you. And then there was a third option, which uh, I think is actually one of the more interesting ones, uh, which is the gateway version of this, uh, in which case IoT Edge is integrated. And IoT Edge allows you to run Edge modules, which are essentially, at their core, they are Docker containers. So I think this was kind of neat because you can use this to actually hook into a different system. So like in my space, it's, you know, you have like an existing time series historian, for example, you can actually write a connector in there to like suck all the data out and then bring it into the data box and then move that into Azure. I think that's kind of neat. Or you can, you can use this to just sort of sit and and run for a time. Um, It can sit there and, and, and collect data over time and let you do sort of a bulk import plus like, you know, keep pulling in data as data changes. I mean, you can do anything with it, honestly. I'm just giving like some of the potential uh, ways that you could use that. Because again, you can write essentially arbitrary code in a container that will run on the edge. And I, th- I think that's going to be neat for, for some scenarios. Any other comments on that? No, I, I generally love Microsoft's kind of going towards the hybrid part, right? I mean, this is an instance of where we are putting our money where our mouth is, right? We have been talking yeah. about where we kind of excel, and this is fantastic to see because more and more we are kind of letting the people literally on the edge kind of play with Azure or be a participant with Azure ecosystem, right? It's yeah. Awesome. Very cool. Okay. Um, so let's sort of move into our next category, which would be IoT. Uh, so the bir- the first big uh, announcement was the Digital Twins public preview. So this was I- I'm gonna I'm gonna tell everybody kind of what it was, you know, sort of internally or formally known as, uh, which was uh, Smart Spaces. And th- one of the reasons I know I can say that is because like the that name is still like all over the place, like on the URLs, and you'll see it in a whole bunch of different places. Uh, but essentially, it was used. You know, again, it was it was used internally as basically like smart 
smart building management, you know, keeping track of buildings and spaces and people and things in there. And it's all part of this IoT world. And I've talked about this in the past, how, you know, like you're, you have different devices that sort of know whether or not you're present or not, um, different indications of presence. You have motion sensors, you have all these different pieces. That's where it was born from. And then they looked at this whole thing and they said, hey, you know, this is a model that can actually be used for a whole bunch of different things. It just fits, again, it just fits into this IoT ecosystem. So it's really like a set of APIs and, and functionality that lets you, it's, you know, you can, it's a platform where you can build on that type of functionality. And I think it's at the kind of the early stages. Um, but uh, over time, I think this will get, uh, get expanded. I don't know if there's something you want to say about it, Carl. No, just to expand upon what you said, it's really recognizing that in IoT data, there's there's a lot of common patterns that you see when you have data coming from different kinds of devices. So a lot of times that when you see data coming in uh, with this service, you can say, oh, this is, you know, with just seeing the shape of that data, I know that it is coming from this kind of device. So now you can add additional metadata and understanding on that. And now that you know it's coming from that kind of device or from a certain kind of location, now you can do advanced analytics on there that you might not have initially um, set up your data to provide. So that's that's one of the cool things where this technology can move forward with. Yeah. You know, that, I think that was, a, that was sort of a good meta point you had there is that um, – IOT data is like the data by itself is pretty boring. I mean, I know like IOT is all about the data, but at the same time, like it, it's just data. Um, the Once you start defining relationships and defining structure, like what does this data mean? Uh, what are the actions that can be taken? <clears throat> this is really an attempt to start layering that in. And I think if you, if you look at where this is going to be like three years from now, I mean, this there's, there's tons of innovation in this space, and I think uh, I'm just excited. I'm really excited for the future of, of all of this right now. Um, another one, uh, the IoT Edge now has a public module marketplace, uh, which I think is pretty cool. So, you know, uh, Carl and I know I've talked to a lot of partners where they want to build um, an IoT Edge module and they want to get it to their customer. Uh, or they, they just want to be able to distribute it some way. And, uh, now they have a way of doing that. So if you have an IOT edge running and you want to pull down different modules to do maybe certain type of data manipulation or pulling data from different things, um, maybe it's a different data source. Uh, you can pull down those types of modules now from the marketplace. And I think the cool thing about the marketplace right now is all the modules that are there, are either free or you'll have an existing license for already through the company that you're working with. Woohoo. Okay. I like free. Um, the next one, Azure Sphere dev kits are, oh, look at that. They are available. Carl has one. <laughs> <laughs> I have one too, but I, I wasn't ready to, to just like put it up there. Um, so I, you know, I don't, I don't know if you want to describe what Azure Sphere is. I mean, I can, I can give like kind of a super high level overview. I mean, it's meant to be, uh, basically a chip and a, a custom stack that is secure by default so that you can IOT enable devices, right? Like if you have a TV and it's like, I want to IOT enable this and, you know, maybe I want, I think I want some security because I don't want your TV hacked. This is a good way to, to do that. Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing that I've had, you know, just having years and years of IOT experience, usually the first time when you walk in to talk to somebody about IOT, the first question is security. Yep. Mm -hmm. and And really we're kind of sick of having that discussion. 
<laughs> in the IoT space. So, uh, you know, I don't think that was the impetus of this. It was a little joke, tongue in cheek. But um, really what this is, is taking a look at designing something with security as the first important thing in mind from every step. Yeah. So we, we've always had secure cloud services. So that hasn't been a problem when you look at that in the IoT space. But what has been the devices itself? So um, devices are a combination of hardware, the operating system, and the software on it. So building a device that is secure in, in even the way that the circuits are laid out. You don't have circuits that can accidentally cross the wrong way or provide access to, you know, a very secure part of memory. You don't want or, people or, or being, add a tiny little chip in there. Yeah, you don't want to <laughs> add a tiny chip in there and all of a sudden get this access. Um, the operating system is a custom Linux kernel. It's not the standard one. It's something that's been just really looked at and locked down. And even when you're writing your applications, those are hosted into a secure separate part of memory in the chip. So when you look at this, you're tying all these different threads together. And if you stay within the ecosystem, you can say that this is as secure as we can make this. Yeah. Oh, good point. Uh, yeah. I think one of the things which I was going to add is it's also a, a kind of a play into our confidential computing space, right? Where we are trying to have security enclaves and having them just be trusted and not everything else. Yeah. And in a previous episode, it was it was quite a while ago that I talked about. I think it's the the like the seven tenets of security, and it was mm -hmm. talking about all the pieces that you need. And this is built out of decades of experience in building secure systems. Um, that was actually like, that was, that was the, you know, what, what went into this chip essentially in this, the, the hardware and software stack. Um, so that's really cool. Like that is, you know, if you have only six of them, you can be hacked. If you have all seven, I, I'm not going to say you can't be hacked, but it, it encompasses like the entirety of the world's security knowledge at this point about how you build and maintain a secure device, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, okay. Any other IOT stuff you wanted to mention, Carl? I think we're good for now. Okay. And then I want to talk about uh, basically like general Azure and windows news. Um, and some of these we're going to go through really quickly. So really they're just think of them as pointers for you to go look at. So, uh, windows server 2019 is going GA this month. Maybe it already did. I don't even, I don't know what the actual day is that it's going GA, but it will be this month. Um, I don't have much else to say about that. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um, alt, uh, Azure ultra SSDs, uh, which yeah. is a cool name. I do worry <laughs> that we're going to run out of names that, Im that imply like something faster. Like, I don't know what is faster fast than ultra. ultra, super fast ultra or whatever. Yeah. No, or like pl plaid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually excited about this feature. I mean, I'll get inside. Yeah. Uh, I actually literally talked to a partner a week before and they have been working on this or they've been trying to play with it. And this kind of, uh, for a long time, we had this gap between on-prem and Azure, right? They were used to a lot of fast systems on on-prem and in Azure, or I would say, let me just put it in a cloud world, there was this latency gap. And this, for the very first time, for data-heavy workloads or IO-heavy workloads is absolutely closing that gap. So I, I'm I'm keeping a very, very close eye on this coming from... Yeah, up to 64 terabytes in size and up to 160,000 IOPS. Exactly. <laughs> so, so how, how can yeah. we get those in our laptops? <laughs> yeah. uh, it's called remote desktop, Carl. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not paying that bill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's on your personal subscription. <laughs> Darn it. Yeah. 
Um, and then we announced uh, premium files. So this was the basically the the Azure files, uh, but the premium edition of that. So it's SSD backed um, files. So this is like an SMB file share, uh, but with uh, with backed by by SSD, which is uh, which is pretty cool. We actually also have the Azure NetApp files coming up at some point, right? We did talk about it publicly at the last build, but that will be the other part of the NAS and yeah. shared disk on an enterprise level kind of a play. Yeah, how can I forget my neighbor? My neighbor works there, so <laughs> oh, wow. shout out to him. Um, and then I want to talk about the Azure, the front door service. Uh, that was which is pretty kind of, cool. Yeah, yeah. So, so maybe you can help with this one a little bit, but... My understanding, so this thing, you know, it receives your request. So you put this in front of your application. It actually understands HTTP and can basically help with the routing. So it can look at like your URLs and uh, and figure out like, you know, oh, this is, you know, slash cart. So I'm going to send this over to Azure Functions. And, you know, this other part of the site can go to uh, Azure Files or whatever, right? Um, that's my understanding of it. I don't know if there's other features you want to talk about there. I think it's also important to know when people say, hey, how does this compare with Traffic Manager? And, and this definitely yeah. is a superset of Traffic Manager, right? It does right. not just Traffic Manager, it does Traffic Manager and load balancing and, and other yeah. things. Right. So uh, it, it definitely is, is a cool part. And, and I think if I may use, say the same thing, like this was actually used by all of our, some of our products. And we just said, hey, you know, this is pretty cool. Why don't we let our partners use it as well? So, yeah, uh, it actually reminds me of a project that we had in our group uh, a couple of years ago. I don't remember what we called it, though. I thought we called it Application Gateway or something. Oh, yeah, yeah I remember that. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was just called Gateway. It was not even uh, okay. Application Gateway. It was a reverse proxy, right? That was it. Was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And this this feels really similar to that, but now it's uh, uh, better, better, stronger. GA, those types of things. <laughs> Actually, I don't know if this was GA, but it's in production. So we'll just say Oh, that. sorry. No, it's in preview, not production. It's in preview. Okay, perfect. Make sure we clarify that. Uh, Express Route Direct. Um, the coolest thing about this is that Express Route now goes up to 100 gigabits per second. Uh, so now I need to figure out how to get that into my house. Um, <laughs> and how to pay my, for it. Yeah, yeah. My gigabit <laughs> connection feels super inferior now. Um, and then there... I, do you guys know any more about this Express Route Direct? No, no, no. Okay. I mean, but the, but the thing which is pretty cool, just reading the the notes over, yeah, between both the Express Route Direct and the next part of the global reach is ability to stitch it together, right? So you could have yeah. multiple instances of different sets of Express Route deployments, and we being the backbone of all of the communications at super high speed. Yeah, that was that was the part that I I didn't quite uh, understand. You know the. I didn't understand all that, but you know, it's always funny because Express Route is is one of those things where, you know, it's really hard to to get exposed to it unless you were at a company that is using Express Route, <laughs> because I've never gotten the ability to like actually like set up Express Route in my application, you know, because I just, you know, again, I'm not going to run it at my house, unfortunately. So that'd be cool yeah. though. <laughs> Um, okay, then Azure Blueprints, um, which is pretty cool. So this is part. This is basically, I, I watch a little clip on this, and they were talking about how this is like a, a piece of essentially governance of your Azure resources. Um, so this thing, you know, based on what I see, lets you, um, you know, like your ARM templates. It lets you manage and assign these things. So if you're part of the IT group, you can say, "Hey, here are these templates, and you know, version them and things like that. Here are the templates that you're allowed to to use to deploy uh, what you need to deploy." Um, I don't know if there's anything else you guys want to 
throw in yeah, that as well. Yeah, I, I think it, it actually can uh, branch out to having compliance uh, kind of implications as well, right? So oh, not yeah, just IT groups, right? But if you think of IT of hospital groups, they might have a different compliance things in terms of which ports are shut down, what kind of data it can, uh, can go out or can come in, and having a very programmatic approach to that. Uh, and Blueprints has been, like this feature has been used by a lot of different companies of, of governance. So, so it's, it's highly, highly in demand. And again, it really depends on the customer and, and uh, who needs it. But for the folks who are either compliance or regulatory issues or other, other even security places, like I know Blueprints and traditional things was used for identifying which computers are vulnerable to heart bleed, for instance, or how do you patch it instantly, or how do you shut them down yeah. so that they don't infect the rest of the network. Um, so all of that is 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 pretty cool. Uh, I don't know if you saw also one of the things which I saw is one of the few products which now goes multi subscriptions. Oh, how does so, that work? So Azure Blueprints now actually can go cross subscriptions, and it has okay. uh, another place where you can actually deploy uh, entire thing over it. There was one more. Oh, I'll okay. dig that up. There's one more artifact or resource which they have created to cool. kind of have that. So management zone or management something over. Okay. Like, yeah, because like whenever you're a big enterprise, right, you have an enterprise agreement, and then you'll have the ability to you know create a bunch of subscriptions. Mm-hmm. So that is pretty cool that you can do it at that level. Yeah. Cool. Uh, functions V2. Um, that's pretty cool. I don't know if there's any other comments on that. Um, so that's available. Um, this next one I threw in here, um, I thought this was really cool. So, you know, we're, we're doing uh, a fair amount. There's a a lot of big companies are doing a lot of research in quantum computing. And I don't know if you guys have ever seen a presentation on some of the implications of this. I think what's really neat about it is, you know, like our, our research group has done a lot of work in quantum computing and we actually have the ability. And, and I think, you know, this is the case, like with a lot of companies, th- this ability to emulate quantum computing, uh, which is kind of neat because, you know, a- as you know, if you're emulating something that's supposed to be like orders of magnitude faster, obviously it's going to be super, super, super slow. So you say, well, why am I trying to do this? Um, why would I try to emulate something like this? But what is re- and we really should have a whole podcast on this. But what's cool about it is they have found that whenever they try to make, you know, like quantum algorithms are just totally different than than a normal computer algorithm. What they found is they will come up with a quantum algorithm for something. They'll run it through an emulator, which could take weeks or months or whatever. Um, and then it spits out the answer. And it actually is solving problems that we didn't have good solutions to before. It's actually coming up with novel solutions. So in this case, they added, you know, this chemical simulation, um, but there actually is value in running emulated quantum computing in a yeah. space like chemical simulation, which is totally mind blowing, right? <laughs> I, I also <laughs> wanted to ask you about when you have two different words meaning very similar things, right? You are saying emulation for a simulation yep. library, right? So I just wanted to elucidate. Oh, yeah, get, yeah. Uh, yeah. So you're emulating the quantum computer. So this is not using a quantum computer. And it is a chemical simulation, (laughs) 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 which is running in the emulated quantum computer, Uh, which, again, it it just it just blows my mind that this is actually useful. Um, It's just it's it's just really cool that we're actually seeing benefits from quantum computing, even without having a a quantum computer. I know there's like quantum processors out there and stuff like that, but um, this is like, you know, like in the mainstream, you can actually use this. Uh, uh, I've heard it for use for like traffic analysis and things like that as well, which is pretty cool. Um, Windows Virtual Desktop. 
uh, which is uh, pretty cool. I'm probably going to butcher this, but you know, it's essentially uh, a lot of a lot of partners have been asking for like remote visualization or this this ability to have like a a managed offering for remote desktop computers. I know there used to be something called Remote App. Um, and I think it's, you know, sort of a, a newer iteration of, of that technology. Cause a lot of, uh, a lot of companies were, were asking for this. Um, I think there's a lot of demand for, for something like this, Be, being able to have your, um, uh, have your users, you know, create that virtual desktop and, and use that, uh, you know, use it at your virtual machine. And then Carl can actually use that so that he can use his ultra SSD. <laughs> so we'll give Carl a, a managed desktop. <laughs> yeah. Um, anything, uh, anything else you wanted to mention on that? No, I was just mentioning our chat window, the quantum computing, yeah. the talk reminded me of Paul Allen, right? I mean, I think yeah. uh, and we should probably take a moment to express our condolences, but he was absolutely, absolutely. influential in, in all things technology, right? I mean, the yeah. edge of technology, so to speak, and pushing things further. So, yeah. Yeah, that was really sad to hear about his passing. He was only 65, and uh, yeah, that was that was really tough to hear. Yep. So... Um, let's see. Oh, Microsoft learn. I think you might've just pasted this in Carl. Yeah. So if you go to learn.microsoft.com, there's a lot of new additional training courses that you can take that are interactive, uh, step-by-step small, uh, tutorials that you can do in, in small chunks where they keep your uh, track of your progress and stuff like that, um, that help you get trained, uh, really quickly on all sorts of when, windows and azure uh topics and what's cool is because we've had like other similar things you had microsoft virtual academy but if you look at those those are like hour-long modules and there's like eight or 12 of them to a topic well this is meant to be done in like minutes at a time yeah and you can it's like choose your own adventure like you can Mm -hmm. you can pick the the path that you want to take there which is really nice so I'm going to put that on my list. I need to go through that. I need to. It's, it's super cool. I mean, I actually got my son working on Python on, on one of those ones. Right? So oh, that's okay. cool. Yeah. He doesn't need to know anything about Azure, but he's just spinning up Python notebooks behind the scenes and with Jupyter and just rerunning Python, listening to some of the talks. But it's, it's, it's that easy, right? It doesn't require too much of in-depth, you know, technical knowledge. And you absolutely can go as deep as you want, but it's super easy to learn. Okay. I guess I'll point my son at that too, then that's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> uh, cause I think Python would be useful. I think, um, my middle son, actually, he, uh, he was going to, I think he's going to be learning some Python in school, which yeah. is neat. Um, very cool stuff. I think, I think it's great to learn. I think it's great when kids can just, instead of, you know, they're, they always do have to start on, uh, on like something really simple, but I think, I think you should quickly push kids into something that is both easy to use and, you know, infinitely powerful like uh like python is <laughs> yeah no no i agree i mean i i remember learning pascal when i was mm-hmm. a kid and it's like COBOL and pascal is no longer relevant right in, in, in the yeah so. see i think i think javascript or like typescript i think is actually great for kids as well uh because you can build anything with it and python you know is is like i said the same way you can build anything with it it can run anywhere so but anyway let's get back on track here uh, we'll get tra- back on track with Stack. Uh, Kubernetes <laughs> on Azure Stack was announced, uh, which is super cool. 
Um, so you can mix in Kubernetes with the rest of the services that you're using on, on Azure Stack. So Azure Stack is neat because over time, you know, it keeps getting more and more features in it. I and, mean, you know, we're obviously going to continue to see that expand with, uh, the, you know, more and more services available there for, for building out a hybrid application or just a non-prem application. Um, <laughs> actually, the other part of that, uh, which yeah. I don't know if you want to spend two minutes talking, I would like to make a shout out is Azure Container Registry, right? As we go in more into yeah. Docker and ACR, there's a bunch of stuff also announced at Ignite, right? In terms of having ACR uh, task being GA or, or just getting to that. So you don't have to have just a Docker registry or just, you know, mm-hmm. Microsoft registry. Any you can essentially build your own registry and have it in your own CI CD pipeline if you want to push both images. Exactly. Yep. No, it's very cool. Very cool. We provide that. Uh, let's see here. Security. What do you want to say about this, Carl? Yeah. One, one of the like bigger announcements in the keynote is Microsoft's commitment to going password free. And they had uh, announced that, you know, you can take advantage of more of that today with the Authenticator app, where a lot of times where instead of having to sign in, it sends a challenge to your mobile device where you can just use like Touch ID or something like that to authorize yourself in. But uh, more and more, as passwords are really the crux of, you know, how people compromise systems, we need to like make that point stronger. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I just changed my password today, and I think what is it now? Six months or a year? It doesn't expire for a year. Woohoo! I don't know yeah. how we did that, but I'm happy for it. <laughs> I didn't even type in my password. You're absolutely right, Carl. I didn't yeah. realize that it's password free. It's hello Windows hello built into over there. We have authenticators which have, uh, you know, either the Touch ID or whichever other aspect of your own smartphone. So yeah, it's, it's been a long time since I typed in my Microsoft password. Yeah, exactly. So I am very happy about that because I hate changing my password. It's the ceremony that I had to go through all the time. And Is it six months? Yeah. I thought it was still three months. I don't know what the ID is. No, 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 no. It, it got bumped up and it's a year, right, Carl? It's a year now. They sent out a yeah. huge email. What? Okay, I need yeah. to check my email more often. So. <laughs> you can change it every three months if you want, Niraj, but <laughs> Actually, it was know. 70 days. It wasn't even three months. Also, it was weird, yeah. <laughs> Okay, what else we got here? Um, oh, I saw uh, the there's there's going to be a uh, this was really just more of an announcement. There's going to be a stream mobile app, uh, which is like this. I think I was thinking of it as like an internal YouTube type thing, uh, but it has offline viewing. And the reason that I threw this in here, I'm actually kind of excited about this because, uh, you know, for one, like whenever you record in Teams, it goes in a stream, which I actually at first I was like, oh my god, this is really stupid. But then I actually played it back. I'm like okay, this is actually better. I don't, I don't have to download like this MP4 file and and do it. And then also if I'm going onto a plane or I'm going to be, you know, just wherever. And I just want to like throw this thing on my phone, um, with an MP4, it was like, you know, especially with an iPhone, it's like, uh, how do I do that? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I'm not, I am not smart enough to figure that out. Right. So, um, having stream available, uh, having an app, actual app available and having the ability to take a video and, and bring it offline. Uh, to me, that actually is kind of a big deal because I can pull down all those those training videos or whatever, and then I can just take it with me. So I like that. I did not know that. Thank you for telling me. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, the show is just for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, this is kind of interesting. The OneDrive files on demand feature uh, is coming over to Mac, which uh, 
is kind of a big deal because like Dropbox, like you have to pay a whole bunch of extra money to get that functionality from Dropbox. Uh, OneDrive does this fantastically well. I think on, on Windows, they do a great job with it now. Um, and that's coming over to Mac. So what the heck, Dropbox? <laughs> and, this, I, and this is available like on, at every pricing tier as well, as far as I know. Like Even if you have free OneDrive, you can do this. So, um, so kudos to them for, for bringing that everywhere. I think, uh, I think OneDrive is a great competitor now with the new sync engine, with the new interface. Um, it's, they've, uh, I think they've really come from behind and that's uh, pretty cool. Um, anything else that we can think of? Anybody dying to mention anything else? But there was definitely some more networking updates. I'm, I'm actually, yeah. I'll be upfront. I don't have uh, networking expertise as much, but uh, there's a fantastic blog by Yusuf Khalidi, right? The, the CVP mm. of Azure Networking, right? Talking about, uh, I know internally it was called Project Cortex, but ability to, you know, essentially easily lay out the WAN interface, right? And the interconnects mm. between those. Uh, we also got um, more features into the DDoS protections, right? So, so those yeah. ones were pretty cool. And even Azure Security Center, they had a bunch of updates around how do you do threat mitigation? How do you do, you know, things regarding preventing SQL injection attacks or uh, some it's of really those. a lot of like enterprise features, right? Where, right. you know, if you are deploying like a serious application into Azure, like these are the things I remember working with a partner a couple of years ago. They're like, you have to provide, you know, like we said, Hey, we have DDoS protection and we can't tell you anything about it. And then fortunately, <laughs> like we started talking about it and then it became a service. And now like, it's just, it's the maturity is really starting to show through. So whenever you are talking about these serious enterprise customers that are like, we must have DDoS, we must have this front door, we must have, you know, this super complex uh, uh, nested networking and things like that. Um, it's great seeing all those, those pieces falling into place. Yep. So, and again, I'll remind everybody, you know, like there's a, in the show notes, we'll have that document uh, that we'll link to. Uh, that kind of goes over everything. And then that gives you an opportunity to say, Ooh, that looks interesting. And then has some links in there to, uh, to take you to the, the blog post. Cause you know, to your point, Niraj, each one of these things, there is a blog post for <laughs> that goes into detail and then also links over to like documentation and product pages and things like that. In fact, so, one of the things I, I noticed while doing research for this uh, podcast is almost every single of the sessions are also posted on YouTube. Yeah. So if you just search for it, you will actually see the sessions on YouTube which is fantastic. Exactly. I mean, you can, anybody can look at it. You don't need special registration permission for that. Exactly. Okay, Carl, what do you have for the dev tip of the week? This is a pretty amazing one. And I I saw you just like look at this right before the show and, and the look on your face just explained how amazing <laughs> it is. Yeah. So remember like in the control panel, you can go into sound. And if you look on there, there's the way that it's set up now. You actually look either... On the right or underneath, there's a link that says sound control panel. And that'll pull up the like really old school dialog box that probably goes back to like Windows XP or earlier. And what you look at that, you see it's like the Windows sounds for like closing a program and blah, blah, blah. Well, if you keep scrolling down, if you have Visual Studio installed, there is a few options for you to do additional sounds on. So on build failed or build succeeded, you could have success and failure sounds, you know, you know like a little cheering when it succeeds or a little sad trombone when it fails. Um, so <laughs> this is epic for like hack fest, right? Like crank up those speakers and then just have it keep doing that. <laughs> absolutely. 
And then there's also uh, two additional ones, Breakpoint Hit and Build Canceled. So um, I I think that for a lot of people, it'll just add a little bit of fun into your, your daily workflow. Absolutely. Or you can really annoy your coworkers if you're. I was going to say, maybe don't crank up the speakers and do that. Maybe just wear headphones and do that. (laughs) Okay. Very cool. So Neeraj, where can, uh, where can people find you? Where can they get a hold of you? Oh, the old school of uh, the original social media, which is email, right? It's Joshi <laughs> at Microsoft.com. Yeah, uh, I, I think uh, I think I'm going to get off of Facebook and Instagram and just uh, jump on this new network I keep hearing about, which is called email. <laughs> <laughs> that's where that's where everybody's at. Well, with Office 365, you have almost limitless uh, storage, so it keeps spamming me, and I'll happy to respond. <laughs> <laughs> oh God, be, be careful what you wish for. Okay, <laughs> Carl, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And you can find me on Twitter at twitter.com slash ytechie. So Neeraj, thank you for coming on here and having an awesome conversation about all of these announcements. We really appreciate it. Thank you.